1: Welcome to the Ruler podcast, my name's Jack Thurston and this is the podcast for issue 55 of Ruler magazine and safe to say this is the Tour de France issue and um, you're joining me in sunny South Wales and um, in broiling Bermondsey, is it broiling over there gentlemen? I wouldn't call it quite so broiling but the sun's out,
0: that's pretty good for an English summer. It, it is definitely Bermondsey there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's Andy McGrath, managing editor of the magazine, and Timothy John, writer and website editor of the magazine. And um, both of you have played a big part in the Tour de France coverage, uh, but we'll come to that in a minute after we have done the traditional opening of the podcast by picking our, our favourite photos or photo spreads. Andy, do you want to go first and dive in?
0: Yes I will dive in. I have gone for a photo from Alpe d'Huez by Paolo Ciaberta on page 180 and to me it just sums up kind of not just what Alpe, what Alpe d'Huez is but what the Tour de France is. It's taken under the crook of an elbow of a fan pushing an FDJ rider um, up past the climb and right next to him there's a guy in a straw hat with a inflatable come on England uh stick. And that that is a tour. That is outdoors like to me. It shows the craziness. It shows the interaction between the riders and the fans perfectly. And it's an excellent photo as well.
1: Yeah, no that's 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 a great shot. That's a great shot. And I like the <laughs> the caption at the bottom. A pat on the back is like a punch. <laughs> it's really not nice being touched, says Andy Hampston. So you know, don't don't um don't do it. Basically, yeah, they don't like it. Tim, Tim, what's your what's your photo pick? Okay,
2: uh, this is also from Paolo Ciaberta, who just is on another plane. It seems his. It's an image from the Lacet de Montvernier, which is a climb that will appear for the first time in the Tour de France this year. Uh, it's a series of hairpins. It's black and white. It's on the side of a mountain, and to that degree it sounds like photos you've seen in cycling magazines before but i think with all the great photographers and i think of Pauline Ballet's images of the Cobalt and Roubaix that we had earlier in the year um Paolo has a very original vision of this road and uh it's a it's a very powerful
1: series of images um so so that's which one are you which one are you picking well, you know, you can't a, pick them all. <laughs>
2: page 160 is my favourite
1: so that's a kind of descender's eye view from it because you're looking down that's looking right. down the mountain yeah it looks
2: pretty terrifying we've got an, uh, an interview with, uh, with a young pro that we'll publish on the website during the Tour de France who won on this particular climb um, in an under 23 race uh, so something to look forward to there on the web in the coming weeks
1: yeah, I mean, it's a tremendous um, climb, and it's it's extraordinary to think that even though it's very close to, it's in the Maurienne Valley, isn't it? So um, right in the heart of cycling country in the Alps, and it's not ever featured in the Tour de France before, and that's something that I think is remarkable. The way that the organizers of the Tour are constantly finding new roads to add to the course, and it's just stunning. I mean, it's a it's a, there's the following page, the double page spread. Um, on page 162 and 163. It's just this, it's like a great big piece of spaghetti strewn across the mountain. It's an e- extraordinary road. And I was doing it, and I was thinking, I, was, I really was taking my hat off to, to Paolo, the photographer here, because it looked like he'd probably had to belay down to this point where he'd taken this photograph. Um, but then I was doing a bit more research on, on the climb, um, and it turns out that that is actually the view from a viewpoint that you can, if you turn slightly off road um, at, near, at the top of the, the hairpins I mean, it's of eight, it's 17 um, very tightly packed hairpins you, you can get to this viewpoint so um, that is and that and that's a great reason to climb it as well because it's, it's a great it's a great view because some some climbs you don't necessarily get that great view of the climb looking back um, or you have to go up to a different mountain to look back on where you've where you've been and, I, and I'm just itching to have a go at this one uh, sometime it won't be this summer uh, um, but uh, this is another summer where I shan't be going to France. Uh, they're piling up, I'm afraid. I'm getting real Tour de France kind of itchy, <laughs> itchy feet to uh, to get to be out there. But one thing and another means that I'm I'm going to be here watching it on the television. But um, my pick—it's um, also from the from the from the Tour de France coverage, the road trip—and it is it is a great double-page spread. I'm just flicking through. I should have marked it tonight. Of the place where they make the trophy, that uh, oh, yes, to winners of the the tour, and this is on page 186, 187, which is a double page spread of really quite a nice load of mess, artisan mess is what this is really. So it makes a change from a load of um, tubes and some files, um, which you'll often see uh, in Enruler, and this is this looks like it's. I don't know what they do, whether it's the enamelling part of it or whether it's the bit where they're grinding it down or painting it or something like that. But this is the bowl that that you get, um, the kind of gilt enamelled bowl. Um, And I just like the fact that it's, you know, made by hand. Really nice. Uh,
0: I thought it was a fantastic story. I mean... Yeah. Because I always wondered about the trophy and I'd never seen an explanation about how it was made, where it was made... If it was worth a lot, which, as you will see in the story that Ian's done, Ian the editor, um, it went for auction in 2010. One of them at the uh, princely sum of 168 pounds.
1: Although I'd say that wasn't one that was actually for a Tour de France no, actually, was it? That's right.
0: No, no. But they're given out to
1: all to all sportsmen. Yeah, it turns out. But it's a fascinating read, and definitely a good ruler angle on uh, on the tour. Um, do we have? A competition winner from last time's competition. Yes, we do, Jack. Excellent.
0: The question was uh, from Ruler Fifty Four: How many times has Helen Wyman been national cyclocross champion? The answer was, of course, nine times. So congratulations to Mark Silcox, and he wins a DVD of "For the Love of Mud" and a matching
1: casquette. So uh, well done, Mark. Well done, Mark. And do we have a competition this time? We do, absolutely. We do. Okay, we'll come to that, come to that near the okay. end, right? Keep you hanging on. There. Yeah, suspense. <laughs> All right, well, look, before we get into the tour, Alberto Contador, good timing with his um, success at the Giro. I'm guessing that, that that wasn't you hastily getting this piece done because there are some aspects of the piece which, which indicate that it predates the Giro uh, success, but it's just good good ruler timing
0: yeah I mean we've actually been planning this feature for the last nearly 12 months Carlos Arribas, the Spanish journalist for El País has been working on it for a while and obviously he's followed Contador for his whole career I mean Carlos has been doing has been covering cycling for 20 30 odd years frankly I thought okay we'll put this in and Contador will crash out in the first three days and it'll be a complete waste But I'd say, yeah, we've been fortunate in that he couldn't have really had a more topsy-turvy Giro and still won it, Um, but it's a fantastic big picture of his whole career and his emotional experience with the, the many ups and downs that he's had, especially in the last five years.
1: I don't know that there is an English language biography of Alberto Contador, which is kind of surprising given that he is the dominant figure in bike racing on the road in the last few years and it shows I suppose how Anglo-centric we are as, um, as British English-speaking uh, cycling fans that nobody's thought I mean there must be Spanish language uh, biographies or maybe Spain doesn't have the same boom in cycling publishing that we're experiencing in the uh, English-speaking world but what's, go- what's going on there? that is extremely strange. I I can't even think of
0: seeing one in Spanish, but maybe I just haven't been looking, uh, seeing as it isn't really a language I speak. And you'd think that he'd have one because it isn't just the way he races is really exciting. His life has been crazy, you know, from uh, from the brain aneurysm to the fact he keeps a lot of birds in his house in Madrid, I think. I mean, he's not really a dull guy. So... I'm guessing it will be done in the next few years if it hasn't though, I mean the, the time is now seeing as he's going to retire in two years is it?
1: Yeah. Is that what he said?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
1: Mm-hmm. Well I, I was struck by, um, by the fact that he seems to be utterly miserable, I mean here's a quote from the, from the piece, um, Contador his friends say is tired, tired of being a cyclist and tired of living in Switzerland he's tired, sad, misunderstood and very lonely <laughs> tired, sad, misunderstood and very lonely I mean, I was struck by that you know, you don't expect people at the top of their sports to be kind of all just having a great time all the time but it does, it, from this it looks like he's a, he's absolutely um, on the verge of depression.
2: I think it's um, it's important to understand the the pressures that a guy that absolutely at the top of the sport is under, particularly if they're not Uh, an extrovert personality I was lucky enough to spend some time with the team at the Giro and uh, we had breakfast with the team before stage 15 and uh, he got on the coach and the next time I saw him was in the start town Marostica where he was getting off the coach and and I say I saw him what I saw were 500 people surrounding uh, the narrow uh, doorway and then Tinkoff saxo helpers on either side of him pushing back the crowd, and him in, he, and Contador inching forward on his bicycle to the to the signon. Um, and he's a quiet and gracious individual, in my opinion. I, I, you know, I've only met him a couple of times. He seems like a decent enough guy, but entirely. Um, uh, quite an enclosed figure, I think, not someone who would seek publicity were he not a professional sportsman. And, you know, that, that's important to keep in mind, I think.
1: I mean, Is he popular in Spain? Because I don't think he's particularly popular amongst British fans. I don't know about American, French, Australian, German fans. Um, he, you know, obviously the doping ban doesn't endear him to people who are worried about uh, the effect of doping on, on the sport. Um, And the the fact that he's not really um, provided a particularly good explanation of that um, or come clean and admitted what he's done. Is he popular in Spain? Just a few weeks ago, I
0: I saw a photograph of his homecoming from the Giro in Pinto and the crowds were (laughs) huge. So he's still a hero. But I think Mm. the Spanish people have an interesting... Although this is a massive generalisation, they have an interesting relationship with athletes and doping transgressions,
1: generally. And um, would you like to elaborate on that? Um, that sounds like a bit of a euphemism there, Andy. I'm, I'm not going to let that stand. I feel like... Say what you mean.
0: <laughs> You're right, yeah, I should. I feel like his standing in, in Spain wasn't particularly affected by the whole, the whole clenbuterol thing. I feel like with other Spanish cyclists in the past who have tested positive as well, it hasn't seemed to matter so much to the people, to the media. This is from speaking to Spanish journalists too. Whereas, for example, take take the UK and instance we've had with David Miller, Jonathan Tien and Locke, even Category 1 races testing positive. There's real shock and horror and I suppose we're more puritanical in a way. Well, that's my opinion anyway.
1: mm mm-hmm. Well, how's he going to do in the tour? Let's move on to the tour. Um, clearly, the Giro was a, an exhausting race. It's always an exhausting race, but it seemed to have been particularly exhausting this time around. Um, is he going to be able to recover well enough to, uh, to go into the tour and, and continue on track for um, taking Oleg's million? I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, the, the, the piece ends with a sort of rather ominous paragraph about. Bjarne Rees being fired, and the fact that now it's Oleg Tinkov in charge, uh, and only Oleg, um, and and what sort of position that puts Contador in, um, because he's not, you know, he's not the most sympathetic of characters. He seems like one of those people that when things are going well, you know, he's your best mate, but then um, then he'll, you know, cut you off at the knees, you know, when when the road gets a bit rougher and things get a bit more difficult. Can he continue uh, on uh, top form in the tour? Can he? Yes. Will he? No.
0: Um, I think he has burned too many matches. I mean, even to finish on the podium at the Tour, no-one will will begrudge him that at all. It it will be an incredible achievement against guys like Froome, Quintana and Nibali who are comparatively fresh. I think Quintana will win, personally, which may be proved very stupid.
2: (laughs) I think it will be a tall order for Contador to win the Tour. If for no other reason the Giro was so exceptionally hard, they they raced hard almost every single day. He was injured twice, his shoulder on the first occasion, his left leg on the second. Against all that, you've got to set the fact that he was in in imperious form. The, The Stage 14 time trial sticks in my mind more than any. I mean, he put the other GC contenders to the sword that day. And he finished second. The only reason he was second, and that was to Vasil Kiryenka, is because the wind conditions changed significantly during the stage. I mean, he was formidable that day. So, if he has recovered to anything like his peak form, then you can't rule it out. But it, it's a it's a huge ask considering that Nibali and Froome and Quintana will be completely fresh. But there,
0: is, there are some mitigating factors in that I feel like uh, Tinko Saxo's tour team will be stronger than the one they had out at the Giro. But on the other hand, with the time trial, he was kind of getting easy minutes against Aru and Lander. Those were the main rivals. Firstly, there's only, I think, 44 kilometres of time trialling in this year's tour. And secondly, you've got Froome and Nibali and guys like that who aren't going to seed as many like, minutes to him, so it, it'll be interesting. I' would love it if he could win that'll <laughs> yeah, be, it. be some story yeah. it's a big yeah. ask
1: i mean it's a it's a great looking tour at the minute. I mean who knows what's going to happen this week in the in the, in the racing as we lead up to it but we do have the the quartet um, that didn't really come to blows properly in in the tour last year clearly it's a it's with so little time trialing and quite a lot of mountains it is it is a climber's Race, but there's also you know these these opening um, stages in in north of France, which are, which are different uh, from that. Tell us how do you think Christian Prudhomme has um, set about devising this um, 21 course set menu?
2: I think Vincenzo Nibali will be the happiest uh, of the Fab Four with the Pave stage on, on stage four. Remember that Frim crashed out before it was even reached. Um, on stage five last time, that Newbury put something like 2 minutes 50 into Contador that day. Um, Quintana rode the cobbles at Harold Becker and another of the cobble races in spring, which uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he wasn't, uh, you know, he remained upright. That's that's the best you can say there. So if anybody is favoured by the parkour this year, it will be him.
0: I don't mm. think that he's going to be—he's particularly stronger than the others. So, I and mean, that's the thing. I mean, these are top bike riders, uh, like Quintana or Froome, are not just going to kind of lose five minutes or or fall off on, on tough cobbled sectors. Even though uh, the past may have suggested that, I think it—it'll be closer this year. They might uh, even have an answer to what happened last year. Though I'm still not sure the Nibali is that strong. He just had a very he had a very strong team for the cobbles that was half the battle there
2: it it will be stronger again this year because of course they signed the winner of that stage Lars Boehm so it will be Boehm and Fulsang and Nibali who were the top three on that stage last year so I think Astana will be will be looking forward to that a lot more than say movie star Um, but yeah we'll we'll see I I take your point in
1: time it seems like there's A purpose and a function of every stage um, in the race this year. Sometimes there are dull stages, transition stages, but or or the the race takes a little while to warm up. But it's it looks as though, if the conditions are right, it's going to be exciting from the very beginning. Um, I guess the only person who's going to not be very happy with the courses if you live anywhere in the middle of France because <laughs> it's essentially two long diagonal journeys from from, from Holland down to uh, Brittany and then from um, the Western Pyrenees up to Alp d'Oeze and then, um, and, then <laughs> and then to Paris and anything in the middle of France um, is completely overlooked or flown over in in a plane. It is it is a great looking course. Um, you, do, you do get that feeling of of looking ahead at a, at a sumptuous banquet uh, laid out before you. And I was thinking about that as a metaphor earlier today. And I was realising that actually it's us that are the diners. The stages are the courses of the, of the banquet. The route is the list of ingredients. And each rider is a chef. Does that, does that make sense? Or are the riders the, 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 what gets eaten? Am <laughs> oh, I stretching this metaphor? Beyond, you make feel very hungry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, I think, no, I quite like that, because um, even that, um, that metaphor extends to the journey around France and, and the different kind of cultures and, and cuisine. Oh yes. And cuisines and the journalists and the riders will
1: uh, will encounter. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the ride is going to have much variation. I don't think they um, be having a sort of nice pairing menu every night <laughs> with local gastronomy matched with particular wines from the region. But what Christian um, Prudhomme's done here, uh,
0: to even extend this this food metaphor further, is that he really has sprinkled these spicy ingredients into the first course of the tour. This is getting a bit ropey now, isn't it? <laughs> into, the, into the first week of the tour, um, say even ten years ago. The first week was a prologue and five flat stages, pretty much. This bears almost no resemblance to that past and it's a cliché but there are a lot of stages in the first week where the tour can be lost and not won. Uh, In this road trip issue we've been careful to include stage, I think it's stage two over over the Zealand um, dams and dykes and stage two I think finishes on a road, a bridge in the sea which is so exposed to the wind. And Luke Rowe was telling me that it's going to be carnage. And we've also included stage four, um, which is Katusha's recce over the seven pavé sectors, which will be in there. Um, And that could be savage as well. I mean, there there could be just one or two contenders left in the race if things go badly wrong. Yeah,
2: I I agree entirely. I I think um, that's following... Following a recent trend, you know, among all the Grand Tours we saw again at the Giro last month, but uh, the idea of a gentle week in which the riders, you know, get to find their legs is is a thing of the past, Um, and brilliantly so, of course, at the Tour last year, um, you know, Stage 2 into Sheffield, one of the most exhilarating finishes I've seen, I think, in the Tour. Um, The Vuelta nowadays, they're pretty much climbing from the second stage. Uh, So I think, uh, you know, Grand Tours are now a race for the full three weeks rather than 10 days.
1: And one of the features that I I very much enjoyed in in the magazine this time is Andy, your chat with Bernard Tavernet, Stage 17, gave you a pretext because this is uh, the Prahloo where Tavernet, as you put it, dethroned Eddie Merckx back in the 1970s. Um, he made a lot of interesting observations about the difference between bike racing in um, his day and, and now. Yeah. And he said that it's less susceptible to a surprise. And all that we've been saying just now is that actually the route maybe is more susceptible. Or maybe that's a response to the fact that cycling has become a bit more predictable um, and a bit less of the unexpected is working its way into the course, and therefore organisers are throwing in crazy stuff. Do you want to respond to what to what Tévenet, um had to say about the differences between um, his day and now?
0: I can see where he's coming from in some ways. Uh, say with the course, as we've just been talking, uh, you'd have to say it is built for surprises. But of course, it's the riders that that do the course. It's not. It's not on paper, as it were. I can see what he means if he means that the breakaways no longer go to the finish. So that's a kind of controlled formula. Absolutely. I mean, the day of the flat stage breakaway in the first week, gaining five minutes, six minutes, and even having the Occitender in, I think is over pretty much, unless it's you know really really windy or over cobbles. Um, at the same time, I'm not sure really where he's coming from. Say. Even in his era, it was Merckx who was winning most of the time, and that, that isn't so surprising. But on the other hand, someone like Tévenet, who, as I mentioned in the story, was called up to his first Tour de France in 1970 three days before the start, uh, unprepared, kind of physically and mentally, and ended up winning a mountain stage two or three weeks later. That That doesn't really happen. I mean, I think at the tour, we're seeing established, more established riders um, rather than first-year pros and that kind of thing. So you, you kind of really have an impression of who's going to do well. The revelations don't really happen and frankly, if they do, it's normally pretty eyebrow-raising stuff. People like Bernard Cole, for example. But there's still there's still surprises in the Tour de France. That's the thing, like the, I think in the 2013 Tour? Stage thirteen to Saint um, amand Montrond uh, Even the fact I remember the name of this small town in France is because the race was torn up in the crosswind, and I think Chris Froome lost thirty odd seconds, forty odd seconds, when he had the yellow jersey, and it just switched just like that. So it's always a moment, just when you think it's going to form, just when the yellow jersey might think he can relax, suddenly the Kind of left behind, and uh, I think cycling can still still has the capacity to surprise, as we saw with the Giro.
1: Yeah, I mean, one uh, interesting other observation that Tevenet makes in the piece is that the formula was simple in his <laughs> well, simple, simple to put on paper, hard to do. Uh, a good mountain stage, a good time trial, and then avoid losing for the remaining <laughs> nineteen stages. Is that still the formula?
0: First, only a great champion can say that. <laughs> that's, it, it's not easy for anyone to win the, the Tour de France. I'm not saying it's
1: easy. I'm just saying that that's the formula that you, know, you work to defend on the 19 stages when you're not um, getting your minute or two.
0: What's interesting is that that's his formula
1: mm.
0: uh, in the way that he was never the up- outstanding climber, the outstanding time trialist, an outstanding sprinter. He had to defend... And kind of, except mainly, keep up in the mountains, especially with Merck's there. You'd have to say,
1: but I can see what he means, yeah. Outlining that, right. So, are we going to put, we going to take bets here, or is that just a game for fools and other podcasts on uh, who's going to win? I think I'm, I suspect it is. I I never try and predict these things. I'm a terrible when I place bets, and I don't think I even have people that I particularly prefer to win. I just like to see a good race. That would be good, wouldn't
0: it? Yeah, to be decided on on Abduez uh twenty four <laughs> hours before Paris, that would
1: that would be great. Uh, yeah, they keep setting up that great big mountain finish to decide everything and it keeps not quite working out, does it? The suspense doesn't quite hold until uh till stage twenty, maybe this year.
0: Of course by then if it hasn't held we'll be blaming uh the first week for making it uh, uninteresting. <laughs> <can't make> sure. <laughs> that's the way it works. Yeah, that's
1: true that's very true as, as well as um, the road trip in the magazine we've also got um, the regular columns from Robert Miller uh, Matt Seaton and what else is in there that we haven't talked about I mean there's there's obviously plenty of stuff in the tour well, that we haven't talked about. well we've got a story for every stage
0: um, exactly sometimes kind of linked to the route sometimes linked to nostalgia sometimes it's um, a photo feature sometimes it's cultural and outside cycling but we've tried to tried to give the big picture of the Tour de France, kind of both slightly looking at this route and the tour itself. I think we've done a pretty good job, but, but I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> do it, do
1: it, do it. And so that's the magazine. Um, what else is going to be going on in Rouleau coverage? Because obviously there's the website. Tim, um, what goodies have you got lined up for us for, for, for the tour?
2: Well, we, we recently signed a deal with a uh, photo agency called Breakthrough Media, who sent us some beautiful images from the Giro d'Italia. So we'll have a gallery of very high-quality images each day during the tour. Uh, We'll have a number of features. Uh, We have a column on the website called Performance, where we have coach James Hewitt, who analyzes the Strava data of the leading riders. His most recent contribution, for example, was to analyze the data of Giovanni Visconti, who won the climber's jersey at the Giro d'Italia and I think that's, uh, that's something that we'll be looking to continue throughout the Tour de France.
1: Excellent that sounds very futuristic um, and it's good that more of uh, the professionals are sharing their uh, information as well. Um, now competition yes who's got the question and what's the prize go on let's, let's get everyone's attention. That's right
0: um, the prize is a new rouleau t-shirt in white with Ruler in blue lettering printed across in the middle ok and so to win this send in your answers to competition at ruler.cc to the following question how many times has the Lacets de Montvernier climb been used in previous Tour de France editions
1: good question yeah alright how many times has the Lacets de Montvernier climb that we were talking about earlier been featured in the Tour de France answers to competition at ruler.cc so where, where are you guys going to be watching the tour are you going to be um, staying at home like me or are you going to be out in France following the race in person
0: I think we'll be out in France for certain stages won't we excellent yeah, yeah. for sure
1: Yeah. well you're very lucky um, enjoy it and um, tell us all about it on the next podcast we will indeed yeah. thanks both Andy McGrath and timothy john you've been listening to the ruler podcast with me jack thurston until next time goodbye bye-bye bye-bye thanks for downloading this edition of the ruler podcast you can read ruler magazine which comes out eight times a year by taking out a subscription go to www.ruler.cc or you can pick up the latest edition at a growing number of bookshops and bike shops. If you've got an iPad, you can read the magazine on the iPad. Not only the current issue, but a handful of back issues as well. You'll find it in the Apple Bookstore